Welcome to the Dead Ladies Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. Some of you may already know about the Dead Ladies Show, a series of entertaining and inspiring presentations about women who achieved amazing things against all odds, presented live on stage in Berlin at Event Space Akud. Well, now I'm delighted to bring you the first ever podcast episode based on that series. And with me to tell you all about the show and introduce our podcast debut are the event's charming and disarming founders and hosts. First, Katie Derbyshire and Florian Dysons. Fantastic. So hello to you both. And uh, Katie and Florian, please just tell us a bit about how the Dead Lady Show got started. I think it got started the way all good things get started, which is on a very cozy night at home with a, a little bit too much wine after a lot of really nice food, and you're sitting next to a bookshelf, and you're like, wait, I should read you this part of this book that's right here. It's amazing. And then the other person goes, but wait, this other book that I don't have with me, but I can look up on my phone and I can find the quote and I'll read the quote to you. And actually, I'll just keep reading because the quote's really exciting. Um, and then before you know it, you are it's several hours later and you've basically become a fan of someone who you've never even heard of before. Right. And that was two actually dead ladies. It was Dorothy Parker and Umgard Coyne. And we were reading from their books and then one of us said hey you know we should do this on a stage and charge people to get in so we did now what uh, you're doing and what the presenters are doing it's not just uh talking there are audio visuals um all kinds of clips and fun things you decided to have a set number of people presenting and we can talk a little bit about how the kind of how the night goes down so to speak so tell us a bit about the format in Akud. right so aside from this fact that we wanted to enthuse other people about women uh, who they might not have heard of we also found that as non-germans living in berlin we're often relegated to either events specifically dedicated towards English speakers or to events specifically dedicated toward German speakers. And part of this experiment that we're doing with the Dead Lady Show that's, is that we combine the two audiences by having always two presenters present in English and one in German. Um, People bring a presentation, so we see photos or, or paintings in some cases of, of the dead ladies and we hear their voices if they've ever been recorded on tape and we sometimes see them on film. People can read from their writing if they were writers or we can share, you know, just share their stories. Um, it's also funny. Did we mention that it's funny? <laughs> yeah, it is funny. And I think part of what what excites us about it is to sort of dive into these ladies' lives. And even if they weren't necessarily famous for being funny, as soon as you dive into their diaries or their letters or um, other, like, maybe not their most famous writings or their most famous interviews, um, all these deep dives into the archives that we do actually bring up a lot of stuff that, if not hilarious is certainly relatable and human and alive and that's that's sort of the point of what we're trying to do but there are also a lot of tragic moments I mean, or at least sad moments we'll have to say and i mean i i imagine that part of that has to do with 
the life of a woman, specifically in, in, in certain eras and places. Right, we have a lot of sad endings. There's a lot of unmarked graves and unpaid bills and, uh, you know, betrayal and murder and um, violence and suffering, yeah. But I think that a lot of the stories are still inspiring because these women have made a mark despite the way their lives often ended. And, and they're, you know, I think we can still take a lot out of their stories and, and in some cases follow their examples, in some cases not. <laughs> yeah. It's about remembering and, and celebrating their achieve, achievements. It's really only successful if people have cried and laughed. <laughs> Right, that's not. It's not. It's a high goal to set, but it's one I set personally. The range of people who you've covered so far is pretty, pretty good, pretty, uh, pretty rangy. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna hear from a rather uh, historical, way back in the day, historical figure uh, for the first uh, episode in a bit, and um, there are people from music. There are people from academia. From all kinds of corners. Uh, well, we've done, we've even done sports, which um, people who know me might find unlikely. And that was Fanny Blanker-Skun, the only Dutch dead lady that we've covered so far. But we've done um, anti-abolitionists, the uh, Grimke sisters. We've done a ghostwriter. No, we've not done a ghostwriter. No, writer. we did the poor woman who, the woman who the poor ghostwriter had to write about. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So she was a failed movie star. movie star. We've done actual movie stars. We've done movie stars turned directors. That was Ida Lupino, of course. Right. We've done uh, actresses turned writers. Anita Lowe's, right? She started out bit part acting. She, did she? Yeah. I feel like, there, yes. There's been a lot of actresses. Uh, we've had some writers as well. My one of my ladies, my dead ladies, was Afra Ben, who was the first woman to make a living out of writing. In ooh, ooh, I have forgotten the year. Seventeen something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we've covered a lot of firsts. Like we have the first woman who, or part of the first all-female team to drive from Switzerland to Iraq. Um, Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach, we have the first woman electric guitar playing gospel superstar, Sister Rosetta Tharp. We've done, what other firsts have we done? Um, B.B. Barron. Right, that was my uh, presentation. Um, and uh, B.B. Barron and her husband were the first, uh, they created the first all-electronic music uh, film soundtrack and were pioneers in electronic music. And we also had Delia Derbyshire, and no relation to Katie, as far as we know, no, um, no <laughs> um, who was also a pioneer in electronic music and uh, everyone will know, hopefully for the Doctor Who theme. Uh, the ladies don't have to be forgotten, but if they are, does that add a little, a little something to it? It does, and I think we like to mix it up a little bit so that there'll be somebody you probably recognize or you've heard her name and then there might be somebody who you you just discover from scratch on the evening which is exciting yeah and then there's people you think you know like josephine baker who everybody will sort of at least remember that image with the banana skirt 
but people then perhaps don't know that she was a like an adoption activist who then built a theme park in which he displayed those children from all the different races of the world. Um, and she also was a spy for the Free French during the during World War II. Um, you know, these women have a lot of, if not skeletons in their closet, then certainly um, a lot of stories that you might not have heard. And you can uh, find out about some of these stories on the Dead Lady Show website, deadladyshow.com, in the Hall of Dames. And we also have a Dead Lady Show Instagram account. Afra Ben is on there today, possibly a spy also. Right. Yeah. Terrible spy. <laughs> she, was, she got kicked out of wherever it was, Belgium or somewhere, for being a bad spy. But yeah, she tried. <laughs> and Twitter as well. So uh, Instagram and Twitter are at Dead Ladies Show. And there's a Facebook page as well. So do come find the show there. Um, are there ground rules for the Dead Ladies Show or the Dead Ladies who are allowed to be featured in the show? The, the name sort of at least gives us two of the rules. So they have to be dead, which, you know, at, at some points, we, 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 the second after Harper Lee died, we got an email from someone saying like, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to present on Harper Lee next week, ideally. And we were like, well, maybe let's wait until they're a little bit deader too soon. Um, but so they have to be dead for a bit, say six months. They have to be ladies or at least identify as ladies and then we have one other rule which is mainly there to prevent us from talking about certain ladies or people who should not be named and that rule is uh no fascists we have no fascists yeah i feel like there we also have a slight prejudice against royals um people who become famous just for the occasion of their birth really um we, we like them to have done something, accomplished something, um, or something real, something tangible, something exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think that sounds fair. <laughs> so we're going to be presenting a curated selection of presentations in this podcast, and it's, for now at least, all going to be in English. Katie, tell us about what we'll be hearing in this episode. So this episode, we've got our wonderful friend Karen Margolis talking about um, Hypatia. Karen's been in Berlin for more than 30 years and she's a writer and translator. She calls herself a renegade mathematician and a stalwart supporter of women in science. And she did indeed study maths. Her specialist subject was linear algebra and topology. And here she is, live on tape, telling us all about Hypatia. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to Hypatia of Alexandria star of ancient science. She lived at the turn of the fourth and fifth centuries and she was a mathematician, an astronomer and a philosopher. She lived in the city of Alexandria in turbulent times. She was the most famous lady scientist of her day and indeed long after. In fact, she held the illustrious title of history's most famous woman scientist for 15 centuries <laughs> until <laughs> this lady came along whom you might recognize, Marie Curie, the Polish-French physicist and chemist who invented radium 
and was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize for anything. She won it for chemistry in 1911. But back in the fourth century, our Hypatia was said to be the world's leading mathematician and astronomer, which is no mean title. Now, what do we know about Hypatia? The answer is not very much. That's why she's usually portrayed like this, a classical type of woman sucking her pen tip and looking thoughtful. <laughs> this picture is often used to represent her, but it's actually from about a century earlier. <laughs> As we'll see later, there are plenty of sculptures and paintings of the male stars in her time, but there is actually no known authentic portrait of Hypatia and no work she wrote have survived. Never mind, there's still a lot to say about her. <laughs> this is another artist's impression of Hypatia that's very frequently used. Most reliable accounts of her life agree she was exceptional. One source describes her as exceedingly beautiful and fair of form. Another tells us she had self-possession of manner, which she had acquired in consequence of the cultivation of her mind. And what's more, she was admired on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue. And usually for a woman, she was welcomed in the company of scholars and magistrates. In fact, Hypatia is more a matter of legend than life story. But that's what makes her so mysterious and exciting. It's what led the famous Victorian pioneer of photography, Julia Margaret Cameron, to dress up a model in the year 1868 and take staged photographs of her idea of Hypatia, highly romanticized in the 19th century style, as you can see. You can hardly imagine this dramatic figure building scientific instruments for astronomy and physics. <laughs> But over the centuries, Hypatia has gathered a lot of fan literature and media attention. In fact, I think she's actually due for a comeback soon. There are two journals of women's philosophy that bear her name, several novels, lots of esoteric literature about astrology and the zodiac, which is mostly waffle, and even plays and films. I'll come back to that later. But for the moment, let's look at what we do have. And what we have are books like this. They give us some solid facts. They tell us that Hypatia was born somewhere between the years 350 and 370. More is known about her death than any other details about her. She died in 415. That was 16 centuries ago. Let's pause for a moment to think about that. She died 16 centuries ago, and she's a famous dead lady today. We're still talking about her. This is because her death was spectacular. Hypatia was one of the last great thinkers of ancient Greece. She was a pagan who still worshipped the old Greek gods. And she was murdered quite openly as part of a political conflict she got entangled in during the decline of Greek life and the rise of Christianity in Alexandria. Now we get to Alexandria, and that's very important for her story. This is a map, as you can see, of Alexandria in Hypatia's time. The city was named after Alexander the Great and was a Greek enclave in Egypt. It was a hub of culture 
and a key place for politics and trade. At the beginning of the first millennium, it was one of the greatest centers of learning in the Hellenistic world, that is, the world dominated by Greek culture. By Hypatia's time, the city was already an important theological center of the early Christian church. It was still a great scholarly place, but the Christians were gradually becoming powerful and dogmatic and wiping out pagan worship and knowledge. Now this magnificent place, this is an artist's impression of the famous library of Alexandria, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. In its heyday, it was said to hold over half a million scrolls. Of course, they were handwritten by scribes because this was before the days of printing. Hypatia must have read many of these works. Mathematics, astronomy, physics, and natural sciences were all collected there, and it was one of the first places to collect textual criticism. Maybe it even included Hypatia's studies on learned scientific works by earlier scholars. And this is the ruins of the library today. It is thought to have been destroyed by fire on the order of the Roman Emperor Theodosius in the year 391, in Hypatia's lifetime. By then, she'd already become a leading thinker. Contemporary sources tell us that she explained the principles of philosophy to her auditors, many of whom came from a distance to hear her instructions. She expounded in public to those willing to listen on Plato and Aristotle or some other philosopher. In 391, the same year that the library was destroyed, paganism was declared illegal. But Hypatia remained a pagan, that is, she continued worshipping the Greek gods. And she did not convert to Christianity like many educated people of her day. Now, of course, most women in Hypatia's time didn't get any education at all. But she was lucky because her father, Theon, was a famous mathematician and astronomer. His dates are 335 to 405, which means he died 10 years before his daughter. Theon seems to have been Hypatia's home teacher and later co-author. This may or may not be a portrait of him. Anyway, <laughs> most scholars of his time were portrayed with curly hair, a curly beard, and a wise expression. <laughs> so it can't be far off the mark. We know that Theon was one of Alexandria's most famous and respected scholars, and he studied eclipses of the sun and moon and wrote celebrated commentaries, like textbook explanations, on works by earlier great mathematicians like Euclid and Ptolemy. We can imagine him sharing his work with Hypatia when she was still young. So what did Theon and Hypatia do when they sat down to do maths? They worked on problems that looked like this, the right sort of thing to bond father and daughter, <laughs> trying to calculate the distance between the sun, the moon, and the earth. Hypatia is credited with first setting the date of the spring equinox. She also wrote an important commentary on a maths and astronomy classic from the second century called the Almagest. Her proud father actually wrote a tribute thanking my daughter Hypatia the famous philosopher, for her work on the Almagest. Now, this later map of the universe from the 16th century illustrates the kind of cosmology they were dealing with. It's called geocentric. That means a picture of the universe with the Earth in the center. 
as we know, that's not exactly accurate, but Galileo had to come along. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the model they were working with. But they managed to find out a lot, despite not being quite accurate. Hypatia followed her father, Theon, in making a big effort to preserve the Greek mathematical and astronomical heritage in extremely difficult times, as you will hear. Now, what else did she do? Well, she actually is credited with commentaries on Diophantus of Alexandria's book, Arithmetic, which was a book about number theory. And here he is, Diophantus. Yeah, he's also got a beard and curly hair. But girls and boys, this is not a maths class. So we'll skip the details. It's all about the Chinese remainder theorem and exciting things like that. And um, we'll go on to another guy with curly locks and facial hair whose work Hypatia commented on. That's um, Apollonius of Perga, and he's famous for discovering the conic section, which may vaguely remind you of school geometry lessons. <laughs> but I won't dwell because it's time to move on to Hypatia's astronomy. Here we have Hypatia stargazing. This is the typical kind of portrait from the 19th century Hypatia revival. Note the undertones of witchcraft, magic, and the occult. Some people did call her a witch. The reality looked more like this. Hypatia is thought to have made early versions of scientific instruments like this astrolabe, which was made later and was used to calculate the positions of the stars and planets at particular times. Now, in the year 400, she was appointed head of the school in Alexandria. This was a rare and very great achievement for a woman. Her best-known student was this man, Synesius of Cyrene. He was a scholar and later became a Christian bishop. He revered Hypatia and stayed in touch with her. Some of their letters to each other have survived and give us valuable information about her. For instance, Shortly before his death, Synesius wrote to Hypatia, I am of such evil fortune that I need a hydroscope. We know that she had one specially made for him. We don't know what he wanted it for because he died soon afterwards. <laughs> but the incident helped to credit Hypatia with the invention of this instrument, one of the first for measuring the density of liquids, and something very similar is still used today. Now, this is actually not a mathematician, although he does look like the others. He's a philosopher called Plotinus, and he was a leading light in the school of Neoplatonism that Hypatia followed. The Neoplatonists said there was an ultimate reality they called the One, and that life was about trying to reach it, although it was actually unattainable. That didn't appeal to the Christians, of course, who claimed God as the ultimate reality. And this was the core of the conflict between pagan philosophy and the Christians that ultimately led to Hypatia's murder. Well, after all that science, <laughs> we finally get to the love scene. We know that Hypatia lived a pure life as a virgin, dedicated to learning, this wasn't unusual in her day, think of the Vestal Virgins, but it did inspire one of the most striking stories about her. Apparently, a young male colleague felt hopelessly in love with her, and her attempts to cool him down only excited him all the more. <laughs> Damascus, a contemporary, tells the story. 
and he could not control his passion, but made his affections obvious to her. And bringing out one of her menstrual napkins, she threw it at him. (laughs) And having displayed the evidence of her unclean nature, said, it is this you love, young man, not beauty. And he, put off by shame and horror at this unseemly display, disposed his heart more temperately. Now, the picture shows the scene from a play about Hypatia. This is the romanticized version, of course. (laughs) The experts actually tell us that Hypatia was demonstrating that she lived as a virgin, which meant she had periods and used menstrual cloths, unlike most of her female contemporaries who were either pregnant or breastfeeding and therefore unlikely to have periods. So there was a point to all that. Now... Wait a minute, everybody, this is not funny. We come to the baddie in the story, Hypatia's murderer, Cyril of Alexandria. Intolerance and bigotry grew in the city after he became the bishop, or they called it patriarch, and that's the right word, of Alexandria in the year 412. Hypatia was caught up in bitter rivalry between Cyril and a friend of hers, the Roman prefect Orestes. This led to her brutal murder in March 415, reputedly by parabolans assisted by Nitrian monks. They were all fanatical Christians who supported Bishop Cyril. So this 19th century engraving of the death of Hypatia shows one of the assassins ready to strike the final blow. Hypatia's murder, a crime story of antiquity, is described in detail by the 5th century Christian historian Socrates Scholasticus. He wrote, and this is a bit hairy, I'm warning you, All men did both reverence Hypatia and had her in admiration for the singular modesty of her mind, wherefore she had great spite and envy owed to her. Socrates says people accused her of stirring up political trouble. He goes on, to be short, certain rash and heady cock brains whose guide and captain was Peter, a reader of the church, watched this woman coming home and pulled her out of her chariot. They hauled her into the church called Caesarium. They stripped her stark naked, and they raised the skin and rent the flesh of her body with sharp shells until the breath departed out of her body. Later, they burned the body to ashes. Well, there he is again, the patriarch Cyril, murder of Hypatia resplendent in his robes. Cyril later became one of the most revered saints of Byzantine Christianity. Despite his known involvement in the murder of one of the greatest women scholars who ever lived. But that shouldn't surprise us. Cyril stood for the kind of blinkered religion and patriarchy that has always victimized and oppressed thinking women. It was her martyr's death that made Hypatia into an enduring legend. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Hypatia has generated all sorts of spin-offs over the centuries. 
the 19th century English author, Charles Kingsley, famed for his classic children's book, The Water Babies, wrote a novel about Hypatia. You can see various editions here. It was a colorful version, to say the least. This is a taster from the beginning of the book. In the light armchair, reading a manuscript which lay on the table, sat a woman of some five and 20 years, dressed in a simple old snow white ironic robe, falling to the feet and reaching to the throat. Her dress was entirely without ornament, except the two narrow purple stripes down the front, which marked her rank as a Roman citizen. The gold embroidered shoes upon her feet and the gold net which looped back from her forehead to her neck. Her features, arms and hands were of the severest and grandest type of old Greek beauty. There might have seemed to us too much sadness in that clear gray eye, too much self-conscious restraint in those sharp curved lips, too much affectation in the studied severity of her posture as she read, from which we gather that ladies who do mathematics and philosophy may be beautiful, but they're likely to look severe and sad as they pose with a book. <laughs> now, this is an illustration from Kingsley's Hypatia novel, a contemporary uh, edition. It gives an idea of the flowery approach to our great dead lady. Incidentally, Hypatia was Queen Victoria's favorite book by Kingsley, and it was hailed by women's rights campaigners for promoting educated women. Bringing things up to date, the latest in the Hypatia product range is a movie from 2009, Agora, starring Rachel Weisz, and retelling Hypatia's life story as a Hollywood love story. <laughs> a couple of stills will give you an idea. This is how lady mathematicians play bedroom scenes. <laughs> or at least in Hollywood movies. And the film won several Rotten Tomatoes ratings uh, for being rotten. I, I must say, it does have a very high kitsch factor. Women drawing circles in the sand to show the audience they can do maths is just one example. <laughs> Actually, it's cribbing from Euclid, but I'll spare you more. I think the film posters say enough. And to leave you laughing, I'll bow out with the trailer for the movie. Thanks so much for being such a lovely audience. No, the heavens should be simple. They are not. In the last days of the Roman Empire, at the fall of civilization. One woman, a legend ahead of her time, stood to unite mankind. Whatever may be going on in the streets, we are brothers. That was a bit of the trailer for Agora, or Agora, starring Rachel Weiss as Hypatia, or 
Hypatia, which is how I've always said it. <laughs> um, and the end of our first presentation starring Karen Margolis. So by the way, Karen has a newly published Kindle book called The Spider and the Spies, The Secret Files of Stasi and Co. And you can find it online. I think you know where. That's our show for today. In future episodes, we'll be adding some special features. Our next episode will come your way in October, but in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of the program and send us suggestions. Who would you like to hear celebrated in the Dead Ladies Show? Virtual postcards and heartfelt missives should be sent to info at deadladieshow.com. The Dead Lady Show is presented in a mix of German and English every other month at Akud in Berlin. We'd love to see you there. And I just want to say thank you to the Dead Lady Show co-founders, Katie and Florian. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you.